The third lesson is from Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 9. The peace that Christ will bring is foreshown. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod with his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Their nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. The word of the Lord. This is a time of year when people tend to say things like they want to get in the Christmas spirit. Now what we mean by Christmas spirit may be different things, but the idea of spirit perhaps is simple enough. Um, a certain attitude, a certain emotion, a certain experience, a certain feeling, there's an appreciation that the holiday season um, could be experienced with the kinds of words that surround Christmas. Joy, hope, peace. And we want to feel that, we want to experience that, and we're aware that just going through the holiday motions, if we don't have something in us, some spirit, well then we may miss out, or even worse, the holidays be could become quite difficult. Um, many of you would know, and some of you are, are perhaps facing challenges this holiday season, but just because we choose to celebrate doesn't mean that this is a season of joy. And so, for example, um, many people gather with families during this time and celebrate and, and do extravagant things, and the goal is that it would have those things that mark the Christmas spirit, that it would be a time of joy and a sense of hopefulness, but um, we live in a world that's complicated, and so in the first reading, there was a word, enmity. We tend not to use that word, but there's conflict. Um, <clears throat> sometimes we, we have um, concerns about people. Maybe there's not forgiveness. Maybe there's particular sensitivities 
especially at this time of year on certain political issues, like a landmine. Uh, you show up at home with your family, and rather than enjoying everything, you spend the whole time hoping that something won't be said to set things off. And so if that's the case, then even if the food is far more extravagant than you'd normally eat, and even if the decorations are beautiful, and even if the gifts are lavish and generous, if the spirit is concerned, angry, frustrated, fearful, well then, that doesn't make for a joyful holiday. You could easily imagine a contrast, not that these are the only two options or this is what we would have to choose between, but people gathering with those that they love and are glad to be with. And maybe the food isn't particularly special, maybe nobody decorated, maybe the, the gifts, if there are any, are of those along the lines that it's the thought that counts. But you have that thought of this person means well and intends well. And, and if you had to choose between the two, and of course, I don't want to. I want to be with people I love, and I want to have the Christmas spirit, and I want really good food, and I want good presents. I want it all. But if you had to choose between, there's something about a spirit, a sense of joy and peace that, that you want the externals to, to draw you out and help you celebrate. But the reality is the externals could be there. But if something's not right inside, well then, uh, not only is it a missed opportunity to have the joy of the season, but the holiday seasons could be particularly painful. The story that we're celebrating today through these various readings that we want to get into the mindset of as we near Christmas to remember what Christmas is really about involves spirit. And so if you see in the, the third reading, which is where I'm going to focus my comments, every reading was wonderful, um, but I'm going to be looking at Isaiah in our time together. Each week during December, we're looking at Isaiah. So today I'm looking at Isaiah number uh, chapter 11. In verse 2, where, where Isaiah is announcing many years in advance that one day God is sending someone into the world and this person will change things, will transform things in a radical way. Verse 2 says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is going to make this person unique. It will empower him for what he needs to do. It has to do with the spirit that is on him. And, and if you look at verse 1, the context of this passage has an agricultural kind of metaphor to it, which is that the one who is coming is like a branch that will bear fruit. And if you think about um, gardening or farming, um, where you expect growth, there's something that's going through the living plant that then when everything is done right and it's healthy, if it's a fruit tree, then it bears fruit. That idea that, that there will be a branch whose roots will bear fruit, he comes forth from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David, the king's father. So there's a signal, another king will be coming. And, and he will be connected to this story. So that's why we read passages from, from throughout the Bible, but not just connected to it, but he pulls it all together, he fulfills it. And then as he invites people to him, uh, it's like being connected to this living branch that is meant to then bring life, that the spirit that's on him goes into those who are connected with him so that there's a fruitfulness. It's quite a, a lovely and powerful idea. And, and it brings transformation, this spiritual work that, 
that God does by connecting what's been separated, what's been broken apart as Jesus comes into the world to regather, those connections start to send life, or the intention is to send life, to send that spirit through to bring transformation. And it's to transform everything. And so there's meant to be this ongoing process until the end of the ages when all things are made new. In the meantime, um, we live in a somewhat uh, still difficult and discouraging situation. But change has begun and there's hope. And so today I want to highlight three different themes that you see in the Bible that are certainly in the Isaiah reading of where we can expect transformation in our lives and in our world. And they're in knowledge, righteousness, and fear. So I'm going to talk about each of those three. If this spirit comes in and starts to work, it's going to change the direction of things. And first, it's going to change knowledge. How does knowledge change? Well, one of the ways that knowledge is transformed is uh, through this one who comes by his spirit is it's a change from facts and information to a knowing that's personal. And so you can see that there's a, 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 an emphasis in the reading that the one who comes himself will be wise. He will have knowledge, but he will come as a teacher, as an instructor. But he's not just conveying information. He's doing something deeper than that. So in verse 2, it says, The spirit that's on him is the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, each of those words brings out different shades and gets at something different, so I don't want to be too simplistic. I'm highlighting the concept of knowledge maybe as, a, as an umbrella term, but even if it's not, not the term that encompasses everything, you could see in verse 9, after there's this beautiful vision of the kind of transformation that we can't imagine. Can you imagine a wolf lying down with a lamb? Uh, can you imagine carnivorous animals playing with the animals that they normally eat? a child playing over a serpent without there being a concerned parent. Um, it's hard to imagine that deep change is where all things are going. But, but after that picture, it says the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. So part of what this figure who, whose birth we celebrate, who Isaiah announces is coming into the world, he will have God's spirit, and that spirit will be with him to to bring a change in knowledge. And the knowledge, as I'm trying to highlight, is not just facts. The goal of Jesus was not to make atheists theists, to believe that the existence of God is possible or even very likely. It is not simply to teach facts about God in, as in a trivia way, that having listened to him, we now have more information about what God is like. But he's coming with an invitation to say that actually God will will extend the spirit out so that you can know him, that there's an understanding that then transforms how we see, how we understand, that, that opens our eyes in a way that, that moves us from just being religious people that have sort of facts and practices, but where a spirit brings us to life, and so everything around that is changed. I'm currently reading a biography, and what's interesting about this biography is it's written by somebody who, who knows the person she's writing about. So it's about a scholar, and this is a former graduate student. And I imagine anyone who writes a biography has to have an initial interest in someone, and certainly after all of that research must feel like they really know the person they're writing about. 
But what's interesting is, is uh, even though this person's writing about someone who's no longer alive, she actually did know him. And her colleagues knew him. And therefore, there are interesting things she does in this book. Not that it couldn't happen in other ways, but, but she does this one interview where somebody says something about uh, this figure's life that she'd never heard before. She never encountered. And part of what she's doing in the book is, is trying to make sense of this one fact that there's nothing else to verify. And so she talks to other people who knew him and she reflects on what she had known. And because she knew him, because she's in a community that knew him, this one strange thing that they didn't know about has a context to be understood. And that's what Jesus is coming, not just another figure that's going to give us ideas about the possibilities and meaning of life, but he's coming that the spirit on him will help us to not know about God or whether or not there is a God. But in a way that's really hard for some of us to grasp, um, can we know God? God is invisible. We don't see him. Well, what does it look like to walk through this earth as if God is with us, that his spirit is the very life dynamic in us? The Christmas story says there's a transformation. And so Jesus... Um, with his disciples, teaching them, instructing them, after their years with him, they still didn't get this. It's not easy to get. And so in John 14, Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus, another one of those moments of extending patience. <laughs> Here it is again. They don't get it. They don't see. They don't understand. says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because the Spirit of God is in him. He doesn't come just to tell us about God, but, but, but the Father wants you to see him, to know him, uh, to join with him. Jesus says, that's what I've come to do. And then in that instruction, he talks about the sending of the Spirit. The Spirit that's on him will come to us so that we'll get it, so that God can be known. So there's a transformation in knowledge that we don't just know about the world, we don't just go through it, but... But as life comes into us through this invitation, it changes the way we relate to God. And, and once that relationship changes, the way we relate to people, to our world. So there's a transformation in knowledge. Here's a second, uh, second theme where there's a transfer, transformation. It's in righteousness. And here what I have in view is a transformation from um, an outward effort to try to be good Maybe the, um, the, the performative morality that's common for us where we want people to think we're good or we want people to think who we want to be. There's a transformation from that to things being made right where goodness is, is possible to take deep roots and so it changes who we are more thoroughly. It's a transformation in righteousness. Now, I don't know how often the word righteousness is used in the context where you go to school, where you go to work, in your relationships. It's a very uh, important word in the Bible, and so in church you expect to hear about it, perhaps. But because we don't use that language to talk about ethics or morality or our very being, the word righteousness could have a negative connotation for some people. We tend to preface the word righteousness with self, being self-righteous, is not good. That's exactly the kind of thing we want to avoid. It's exactly the kind of thing Jesus came to critique and to change. Self-righteousness is exactly an example of the problematic kind of righteousness that we don't want, 
where there's this outward morality and ethic that some people are convinced that they're on top of and they look down on and judge those who don't meet the standards, or the greater reality is most of us are afraid to admit that we all feel like we're falling short, but to admit that would be to, to immediately get us marginalized because we're not keeping up with the system. And therefore, there's this, this performative treadmill that we feel like we need to keep up with. Um, and yet what keeps sneaking out is that under the surface, we have problems we're avoiding and not dealing with. The end of verse three through verse five, the picture of this one who's coming into the world, who has the spirit of God, it says, he shall not judge by what, it is, what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. And so, so there's a superficiality, how we engage the world through the senses, that's what we have. What we see, what we hear, that's how we know. But this one is coming with true knowledge, true counsel, true wisdom. It's with righteousness, verse four says, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. There's, there's something about who he is that's different. Verse five, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So it's not pride, it's not a performative righteousness, it's not rule keeping. Um, but, but in English at least, you know, the Isaiah was written in Hebrew, but the, the English word righteous has the word right in it. So, so what are we talking about? I think that's a, a good picture. There's something wrong that's made right. And there's something wrong in us that we try to make right through our rules. And so, so hopefully that will make us do the right things despite how we feel, or at least will make us look like we're doing the right thing. The one on whom this spirit of God rests, things are right in him. And he goes around to make things right. Uh, his contact with the world is to repair, to fix, to change things. And therefore it's with righteousness he judges the poor and decides with equity for the meek of the earth. And it's very important for Jesus when you, when you read his teachings, when you watch him in his ministry, why is it that the poor and the meek have a particular priority for him? Well, Jesus is coming with great power, with great authority. The spirit that's in him is not simply an emotion of kindness, but it's the spirit of the Lord the one who in the beginning of the Bible called all things into being. Jesus comes in great power. What happens when people who have a performative righteousness come into the world to demonstrate that righteousness and exercise their power? It's always the vulnerable who are the first to be destroyed by it, to get overpowered. This is one who's coming into the world and the spirit of God is really in him and he's not just showing you a vision of morality, but there's something right in him that's unique. And he's coming to connect us to him so that we would have something right in us. And therefore the evidence is we tend to judge the poor, either we look down at them, because in our competitive nature we think they must be failures, and it's always comforting to have somebody failing because it helps us if we don't feel like we're doing well enough to be like, well, there's always somebody worse, and so then there's hope that I won't be the next to get uh, defined, isolated, nailed down. But there's also something to say, well, with the poor, in that kind of mindset, there's no usefulness for them. So maybe we don't judge them, <laughs> but let's just be quick and get rid of them. And there's an attitude that Jesus has that shows that he's right to say when he comes in his power, it's to renew everything. And it's particularly hard for people who need to be humbled because of this external kind of righteousness that we're holding on to. 
But it's something so thorough that those who are really struggling, who want goodness, who want to be good, they're not cast out, but they're, they're brought in. So if we were to go further in Isaiah, a passage we're going to look at in two weeks, Isaiah 42, um, again, this servant coming into the world that keeps being announced in Isaiah. In Isaiah 42, 3, it says, A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And it's kind of like lighting a match on a windy day that even if you cup your hand around it, if the wind is strong, it's a losing battle. The flame will go out. That spark of life in us that so many of us feel like is waning, currently maybe because of our boredom or our anxiety about the shape of the world and COVID, these various things that are, are taking that spirit, the joy, the vibrancy from us. At Christmas, we're remembering one who comes into the world and that light shouldn't make us feel like we need to withdraw. But there's a spirit in him that, that he wants to reignite. And so unlike um, our coming in with great power and might, you come in quickly and the wind of your entrance causes the, the dimly burning wicks to go out. There's something about the one who, whose spirit is, is seen in the scriptures as wind as power, like a storm, he comes in with all of that power, but the bruised reed doesn't break because of his presence. The, the dimly lit wick, the one that's struggling to stay aflame, doesn't go out. But when he comes, it's something that energizes and reignites and uh, brings to life. It's a righteousness that shows there's something right about him. And the invitation is, if we connect with him, he's going to make something right in us. He's going to bring that spirit to make us alive. That's something that's transformative. So he transforms our knowledge, our righteousness. Here's the last thing that I want to highlight today that Isaiah announces one day someone's coming into the world. Christmas, we celebrate his birth. Fear is transformed. Now, what's the nature of this transformation? It's a transformation from terror and dread to reverence and awe. There's a sense of greatness, but instead of fearing that the greatness will, will crush us, there's something about the greatness that opens our eyes to something hopeful. That's a transformation that we need. And so in verses 2, as you get to the end of that and the beginning of verse 3 in Isaiah 11, the spirit that comes upon him is a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. That word fear, maybe even saying it provokes the feeling of fear for some of us. Oh, Here's another religious person, that the spirit is a, the spirit of knowledge that will cause fear. But verse 3 says, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Maybe that's a little bit jarring. Wait a second, why is, why is this fear of the Lord something that causes joy? It's, it's a place of satisfaction. Well, it's a transformation of how we conceive of fear. Because in this world, with all of its difficulties and corruptions, we ourselves as we know ourselves in the way that we exercise our anger and our power, um, we're fearful of that kind of power, the power of God. And so uh, we misunderstand and therefore fear, as, it, as we think theologically, even in other realms, tends to have negative connotations. Now, fear itself is good in that human beings need it. If you're in a situation where you're in danger, the biology to cause you to, to breathe more quickly and to give you energy is quite useful. It's protective. 
what happens is, what happens, you know, two years into COVID and we're still afraid that there's another variant uh, that will come to us. It's, it's two years of maybe a lower grade anxiety. That's not useful to us. That's nice, not life-giving. That wears us out. We're the kinds of people that live in very hostile contexts. Think of civilians where there's war uh, in their place, constantly afraid when they go to bed at night that they may wake up to the noises of their city being bombed. That kind of fear, there's nothing good about that. That destroys our humanity. And so when we think of the fear of God, many of us, our only exposure to religion is that that's the nature of God and his power and his authority is that we are to fear in that same way, the, the way that drains the life out of us. And here's one who comes filled with God's spirit and because he's righteous, he comes among us in our weakness and he transforms the kind of fear that we have that makes us want to keep God away and opens our eyes that we might see something that would hope that God would draw near. That is essential in the Christmas story. See, if we don't have the knowledge that's been transformed, and if we don't have righteousness that's been transformed, then there's no hope that we're going to have the kind of fear that's healthy. What we get stuck with is the kind of fear that's common. And so, on the one hand, our self-righteousness leaves us in pride, puffing ourselves up so that we think we're better than we are. And therefore, we don't really have a knowledge of God, of what true goodness is. And, and God is easy to dismiss because he's irrelevant. You just don't need him. But, but that view, whether or not you think that God is irrelevant and doesn't exist, or whether or not you think, well, maybe God is there, but but just not really essential to my life. When we're filled with a kind of self-righteousness, then what happens is that we're not equipped for the experiences of life that cause fear, the kinds of things that show us that we are not in control of all things, that the world is more troubled than we sometimes let on. And therefore we have a religion that has no power. So when you need most the resources to strengthen you to keep going, they haven't been cultivated and haven't been developed because we haven't understood knowledge and righteousness. What's more likely is most of us are honest enough with our own hearts, with our own patterns, that we know that our righteousness falls short. The Bible would affirm that. There's none who's righteous like this servant. And the discouraging reality of wanting to be good, as all of us should be, but feeling that there's something that's not good enough then what knowledge do we have of God, the power of the creator, the upright and the holy one? Then the very insight we have to our own heart makes the incentives there to not believe in that God. We, we don't want to see that God because it's terrifying. If that God exists, um, we want to hide and fear that we can't. Knowledge and righteousness need to be transformed or we're going to be stuck with the kind of fear that drains the life out of us. What we have in the Christmas story is someone being sent into the world, a baby who's born, who will transform all things, but he will invite you into a true knowledge of God. He will show you his righteousness, but cover you with it, so that then you don't fear God based on what you assume he is like and what he would do given who you are. You don't ignore God thinking that you're good enough that you don't need him. But you start to see the greatness of God in a way that actually brings that peace 
that joy, that satisfaction. You know, Isaiah talks about one on whom the Spirit comes, and it's unique. And you read the last reading in Luke. The angel announces to Mary that the Holy Spirit will come upon her, so this child born will be unique. He will be a human being born of Mary, but he will be the Son of God in a unique way that the Spirit is not just on him, but he is the Spirit of God in a sense incarnate. Now, prior to the birth of Jesus, there are a small number of figures that we read about in the Old Testament where the Spirit of God is on them. And, and that Spirit comes and empowers them to maybe build the tabernacle with wisdom and beauty or to raise them up like one of the judges to, to fight off the enemies or perhaps a figure that is most known for being this type of the one who would come is David, the great king. That God's Spirit is with him. David was knowledgeable. David was good. A great example. It's curious, and I, I'm the type of person that would want to spend a lot of time on this, but I won't. But verse 1, why not the stump of David? It's interesting. It's Jesse, David's father. It's, it's like the better David, the true David, the one who we always should have hoped in his coming. David was a great king, a great model. The spirit was on him, so he did great things, but he was not thoroughly righteous. The Bible is clear about that. Read his story. He does some terrible things. One of the most famous psalms, Psalm 51, a psalm of confession, um, where he acknowledges his wrong, typically attributed to David. One of the chief requests in Psalm 51 is, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That was David's concern. There was not everything in him was right, but what was right is he had that heart. Lord, remain with me. May your spirit be with me. Don't cast me off. Christmas tells the story of the greater David who comes, filled with God's spirit. And he's born to go into this troubled world. He didn't begin his existence easily, but he was born among a woman who couldn't afford to make the offering and the sacrifice at the temple to signal his birth. There was no room for him in the inn. These kinds of things that we hear about. Um, he was born in humble means, and he remained in humble means. Um, but his life ended, not just humbly, but with humiliation. And so what is it that we fear? You, know, you may have a very specific fear, a fear of spiders, fear of a car accident. Maybe not so specific, but the fear behind that. Why would you fear spiders? Why would you fear a car accident? What, what are the basic fears that we have? We fear, and now as I'm going to catalog some examples of the kinds of fears we have, think about what the Bible tells you about Jesus' last hours, his crucifixion. If you're not familiar with the story, maybe go read those portions of the Gospels with this in mind. What do you fear? Do you fear humiliation? Do you fear rejection? Do you fear people thinking you're a failure? Do you fear suffering? Do you fear ridicule? Do you fear death? Do you fear shame? The Bible tells a story about this one who comes into the world in righteousness, and yet he faces everything that we fear. And his presence will not cast out the dimly burning wick, but this bright figure of light goes to the cross and darkness comes upon him and he gives up his spirit. And what we're told is that is how we will know the God of the Bible. That is how we will understand what true righteousness is. That he faced the hostility and the brokenness of the world. And he wasn't baited, he wasn't tempted to become like the unrighteous, but he remained filled with the Spirit of God 
so that that spirit would go from him to the rest of us. Now, how could unrighteous people connect with God? That's the Christmas story. He came not for the well, but for the sick, not for the innocent, but for the guilty, not for the thriving, but for the struggling. He comes in and invites us with a, through a revelation of God. Do you know God? Well, do you know his power and his mercy? Do you know his wisdom, but also his compassion? Uh, God is so wonderful that our minds can't keep these categories together, but we're told he goes and faces those things for us so that the things we celebrate, that his arrival signals joy, peace, hope, can be ours because of who this person is. That contact with Jesus helps us to know God, helps us to be changed thoroughly. If you're a regularly part of our church, a few weeks ago, Tim Cooper was preaching and he mentioned Mr. Rogers. Um, one of the things about Mr. Rogers, so uh, for those of you who, who don't know who he is, he had a TV show. He was a Presbyterian minister, and his show was for kids, and he was known as this very kind, gentle person. And when he died, one of the things that marked the obituaries and the stories, what is the greatest way you could pay a tribute to him? One of the key themes that you kept hearing is the guy that you see on TV, that's who he really was. I mean, that's an interesting thing to say because often with media personalities, with entertainers, they are great in a very public way, but there's always a backstory. To be able to say, Mr. Rogers, that guy that was just warm and everyone loved, he was really like that, that's actually quite a tribute. But I was reading, uh, there was a tribute to him in the Washington Post and one of the letters that came in afterwards was from a woman who had met him. She had a TV show and she was gonna interview him. And she told a story, and the point of her story was to affirm that Mr. Rogers behind the camera was the same guy you see on the camera. That's the kind of story she was going to tell. But her story was interesting. She said, he came into the TV studio, and one of the people that worked there had their two-year-old child with them for, for the workday and wanted this child to meet Mr. Rogers and brought the child over, and the child started crying. And as the, the parent tried to force the child into the presence of Mr. Rogers, the child was terrified. And so Mr. Rogers went and he got some of his puppets and the kinds of things he normally does on his TV show. And he just did whatever it is that he does. Uh, and the child calmed down and the, the child drew near and the child started to play with him. And the woman shared that afterwards, Mr. Rogers had said, you know, it's actually fairly common when I meet kids who watch my show that when they see me, because he was six foot tall and you had to think in the 1970s when you had that 19 inch TV, but it was not a sharp 19-inch one we have, but there's fuzzy, small Mr. Rogers on the TV, so warm and attractive. And now here's this six-foot guy in real life. There's something, what's terrifying about Mr. Rogers? He's just bigger. He's present. What is it? And yet, he used that size to be himself, and he knew how to take these fearful fans and draw them near and show that, He's actually better than you, you would have seen. He's, just not a, he's not just a character on TV, um, but he's real. You know, when we talk about what is it like to believe in God, to have a, a religious life, these kinds of things, Jesus comes to make God known, but the reality of an engagement with God is terrifying because God is so much bigger than we could imagine. He's so much better, but we can't control him. 
And if that God is of the Bible who's powerful and wise and who has history in his hands and holds life and holds us accountable for how we live our lives, if that's true, there's something terrifying that would want to make us cry and withdraw. But the Christmas story is God knows that. So he sends somebody into the world to go after us to say, but come back. I'm going to show you what I'm like. And if you're weak and if you're struggling and if you're poor and you feel unworthy, no matter who you are, no matter how you've lived, you're invited. Come, that the spirit that I'm sending into the world can come and, and live in you and connect you to me and you could be transformed, that you would know me in a way that will change your life. You can actually have a righteousness where, where you grow and you heal. You could have a fear that causes you to rejoice at something so wonderful you couldn't imagine it that then takes the smaller things that you fear and gives them a context so they don't overwhelm you. That's the Christmas story. So I want to suggest two things. One is, as you think about these things, what, what would it be like to draw near to God, to have his spirit in you? What would be something he'd want you to transform? And, and maybe for any individual here, it could be something that I haven't talked about. But I would pick one of these three. Do you, do you know God? Not just about God, but do you... You go through life feeling when you pray, you're not just casting an idea out there, but, but you're heard by somebody who's with you. That's a, a bit hard for some of us. Maybe that's an area that you need to grow. Do you know God personally? Maybe this Christmas season you focus on that. Or when it comes to righteousness, maybe you're really trying to be good, but you want to give up. And is this the time to say, well, well if I could rest, if I could allow God's spirit to do some healing in me, do I... Can I stop performing for a bit and hope that if I could just be myself in fellowship with God, that, that it will show over time that it's actually good? Maybe that's an area to work on. Or maybe your fear. What is it you fear this Christmas? Maybe is there something about the transcendence, the majesty and greatness of God, that, that trying to focus on that would help you realize that the other things, uh, not that they're unimportant, but they have their place in a greater hope and reality that maybe that would help you go back into the world, maybe through a miracle of God without fear, or maybe like most of us, just not allowing fear to control us because there's a greater hope. So think about one of those things. What can God transform if he's really drawing near to us in this season? And here's a second thing to think about is think in terms of process. Jesus comes already fully divine, fully righteous, and he enters into our life and connects with us to begin a transformation so we will start to know God. But like any relationship, sometimes you meet somebody and instantly you feel like you're best friends, but there's still all these details about them that you don't know. You just need to spend time with them. Or you have an idea of how to do something and you're learning about it, but you make mistakes and you need to practice it. Or you have this fear that, that is holding you back and you need to overcome. Um, we're in process. The question is, what can God do in your life this month, if you pray for his spirit to come and to show you and instruct you, that would help you take a step forward from wherever you've been. Be patient. But, but Jesus has come. The transformation has begun. Uh, God is going to continue a work in us. He draws near. He comes in his power and might, but he gently connects us to him so that his life will transform us. I don't know that any of us needs to have the holiday spirit, but we need to have the Holy Spirit. And if you're going to have the spirit of Christmas this year, it's something God gives to you. So 
So pray for it, receive it, welcome it, and live by that life. Let me pray for us. Our Father, every time we gather, we can say the same thing. We're a community in need. We're a fearful people. We're a flawed people. We're a confused people. Lord, we want to be living people. We want to have that vibrance, even if we have to exercise patience with ourselves and with our world. We want that power so when we go into the world, uh, we have the possibility of making things right rather than constantly being broken by all that we encounter. Lord, you are a God of grace. May your grace fill our hearts and minds so that this would be a, a season of joy and hope. May none of us here be left out of it. May all of us be drawn in and see something of your grace and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.